Welcome to um, our second in this two-part series um, where our Mosaic Station podcast is kind of talking about um, anti-blackness, racism, um, and um, kind of, you know, where our current conversation's at. Um, Our first part, hopefully you heard it, um, we had a couple of our students on, um, and we all kind of jointly talked about various experiences we had and you know, where folks were. Um, for the second part, you know, we wanted to take a minute to talk specifically with um, just our professional staff um, and talk specifically about um, ourselves and kind of um, uh, our self-work, mm-hmm. um, different stories and experiences and how we are here at this place that we are now. Right. I think this this podcast, you know, it, it's mentioned in the first part of this series that, you know, um, Chris and I, this is Sharon, by the way. Hello. <laughs> um, you know, we, we've been reflecting and because we are doing this work, right, we've been doing this work for a minute now. Um, as... Uh, not black people, right? Mm-hmm. We uh we have this platform and we wanted to provide um context of what's going on because I think we have a lot of non-black and white folks going like, how did we get here? You know, mm-hmm. and and um also we don't want to put any more work on black folks, right? Mm-hmm. Like so this is our way of saying you're on this journey. You found this podcast. Let let we're gonna dialogue, <laughs> mm-hmm. and hopefully you can listen. And maybe this is your you know some of the questions that we're gonna pose to each other. You can take mm-hmm. those questions and journal, or you can take these questions and just um, put, make it part of your med- meditation or um, dialogue with your own family and friends, right? Um, especially your family and friends who are not black um, so that Mm -hmm. we can all kind of do this work, right? Um, Collectively, individually, and um, sometimes spiritually, because right Mm -hmm. now I think we really need to do some um, reflections outside of ourselves, these these Mm -hmm. greater reflections. And, And I don't mean necessarily religiously, unless that is something that you um feel you know connected to um but we need to examine we need Mm -hmm. we're in a moment of time of of examining and um yeah thank you for for listening as well for sure yeah for sure so um to start off with we should probably you know i'm thinking might be important to to um uh, be very explicit about some of our identities right um so um again my name is chris i'm the director of mosaic my pronouns are he and his um and uh, to provide some context of my identities, I identify as a cis straight male um, mm-hmm. uh, and racially identify as Asian, um, ethnically identify as Chinese. Um, 
Uh, I am born in the United States. My parents immigrated from Taiwan um, and uh, have lived in California my entire life. Yeah, um, thank you for sharing. Um, so this is Sharon, she, her, hers. I'm the program coordinator for Mosaic Cross Cultural Center. Um, if this is your first time listening, yeah, this is a little bit of my background, but I've talked about it in my and the other podcasts that I've been on, but I identify as a cisgender woman. Um, I identify as a heterosexual for the most part. Um, I identify as Indo-Fijian Desi. Um, so that means there are Indian people in Fiji, the islands. Um, and I have um, the Desi part comes from the uh, historical ties to India. Um, but my family through, you know, colonization was, was, um, placed in Fiji to do, um, labor, uh, by the British government. And so I don't really have ties to India. Um, it's been four or five generations in Fiji. So I also identify as a Pacific Islander because sometimes, you know, South Asian is not an option, <laughs> but Pacific, Pacific Islander is. Um, so it's a little like my, my and that's why Chris and I wanted to have this conversation, right? It's not, mm -hmm. uh, you know, very clear cut. I, you know, we are we are onions. It's very messy. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I am a citizen, um, but I'm also an immigrant. I immigrated to um, the Bay Area um, when I was eight. So mm -hmm. I am, you know, not born here. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I was born in Sydney, Australia, which is like another layer um, of, you know, how I do this work and the perspectives um, that I bring to this work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I didn't really have a clear idea necessarily in my head of where we should get started. I think, you know, yeah. Um, as we speak about these different topics, the context might guide us a little bit. Things might not always go linearly. Right. Um, and I will say, you know, um, you know, wanting to center the conversation specifically around anti-blackness, um, you know, a little bit of context for, for how I grew up. And I've shared this in various places, but part of this experience is to be very explicit about sharing in this context. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I grew up, um starting from the fourth grade um i grew up in west san jose um in kind of the cupertino area um in the bay area and so my context in that sense you know and in, in starting from the fourth grade through high school um was the neighborhood that i grew up in was predominantly east asian predominantly chinese people um we had um some folks from a few different ethnicities here and there, Japanese, Vietnamese, um, Korean. Um, but for the most part, I would say predominantly Chinese folks. Mm -hmm. um, and um, a lot of the people that I grew up with, oh, and also South Asian too, Indian folks too. Um, predominantly, most of the people that I grew up with um, kind of share the same story I did, which is um, our parents immigrated from some country in Asia, mm -hmm. uh, mostly China or India, you know, or various mm -hmm. countries. Our parents immigrated. Um, in the physical location I grew up in, the neighborhood that I grew up in, a lot of folks were um, uh, 
engineers. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I graduated from high school in 2000. So, um, in the kind of formative years leading up to that place, kind of the, um, between the ages of like 12 to 18, kind of, um, was the first dot com boom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of the folks that I grew up with, their parents were involved in some form or fashion in the dot com boom, right? So they worked either um, in manufacturing or for Sun or for like Yahoo was, was a big one, um, you know, uh, and those kind of contexts, you know, during that, the early, late 90s, early 2000s, like meant an influx of wealth, an influx of, you know, um, um, success, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so where I grew up was a lot of um, first generation Asian folks, right? Um, in a relatively wealthy neighborhood, um, you know, in, uh, in, uh, kind of area where everybody kind of had a homogenous upbringing, right? So Mm -hmm. my high school, for example, was 70 plus percent Asian folks, right? Um, and to this day, actually, it continues to be that way. It's, it's actually even more severe now. I looked it up recently for some sort of training that I did first for something. And the high school that I went to now is actually 85% Asian, right? So it's actually gone even, even more. Um, and, and realistically what that meant for me is I had a very, like I said, homogenous experience, you know, all my friends mm-hmm. had the same kind of social context I did. Um, and diversity in my high school and in my neighborhoods was, non-existent right like we had mm-hmm. diversity within the asian diaspora um kind of right like <laughs> like like we had we had we had a few different asian countries represented virtually no pacific islanders represented right. um so that was kind of the limit of diversity we had some white folks um and then we had you know some latinx folks and then we have virtually mm-hmm. no black folks right yeah so in my graduating class, which I think was something like 250 people or something like that in my graduating class in high school, we had literally three black folks within mm-hmm. that class, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, you know, my experiences with black folks and, and you know, understanding kind of perspectives within black experiences was non-existent growing up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, for folks, you know, from what I have heard, you know, from, from a lot of white folks, that's kind of a similar experience. Like we just did not have interactions with people outside of our racial identity. Right. And it's not like you were told though, to not have, it wasn't this explicit thing of like, stay away, stay away. Don't have friends who are black. Don't, you know, interact with black people. It was just the environment was set up Right. Like that, that option wasn't right. 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 That option that is, wasn't even on the table. Right. And that's systematic. Right. That is right. that is, you know, th- these are laws and policies that's redlining, it's gentrification, right. right? Like it's all of those things in our current context that continues to uh um have neighborhoods like this and schools right. like this. Yeah. Uh, we were we were part of that wave of the gentrification of San Jose, right? Like right. San Jose in the history of San Jose, there have been a continual gentrification, right? It started right. as like fruit orchards. Nowadays, it's like 
Silicon Valley, right? right. It's, like, it's like Apple computer orchards, right? So it's like right. the first thing you get away. Um, so, but then we were part of the one of those waves of gentrification, right? So, right. like when we came into that neighborhood, you know, when my parents came into that neighborhood, um, housing was relatively affordable. It was still kind of an unaffordable, but it was relatively affordable, right? right? Um, and you know, part of the experience of seeing what was around me was folks would buy houses. And they would renovate and, right. you know, they, and then they would turn around and sell those houses later after the kids graduated from school, um, right. for a lot of money, right? So like, you know, the neighborhood that I grew up in, literally every house was at least a million dollars, if not two, if not three million, right? Yeah. Um, and they were, and they were not, they did not look like million dollar houses, right? When you leave the context of the Bay Area. Um, right. And you think to yourself, a million dollar or two million dollar house, you think, you know, a mansion, right? Or right. like, you know, a large house at least. The house I grew up in was four bedrooms, right? Four bedrooms, one and a half bath, no garage, uh, single story, right? Um, it was, you know, a suburban house, like a house yeah, that you would yeah. find in any suburbs in the United States. Right. Um, and it was, you know, a, a million plus to, to live there. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, you know, um, it, it's, but it informs so much early mm -hmm. on, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we'll, we'll hear things um, like, you know, when it, when it comes to the property and the way we live our lifestyles in the Bay Area, right? Mm -hmm. It definitely equates to how we, um, interact with black mm -hmm. folks right mm -hmm. the the way that our communities are set up and the way that our houses are are um uh set up it it informs our interaction right mm -hmm. um and as people who um like i i so like my family immigrated in 1996 and you know for the first i want to say six months we lived at my aunt's house in san mateo in the suburbs, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember, like, we immigrated in October, so, you know, fall, Halloween, experiencing all of these things. And in Fiji, the Fijians have, well, at the time that I was little growing up there, right, these um, beautiful black skin and their mm -hmm. natural hair was, like, these really coiled, fro, like, tight fro's. Um, and, you know, that's all my teachers in Fiji had that, um, up until class two, I didn't finish mm -hmm. class two there. Um, and then I remember like when I, when we got out of the airplane, it was at the time where nine 11 hadn't happened. So, um, people who were picking you up could actually meet you at the carousel to like mm -hmm. get your bags. I don't know if folks remember this anymore. Um, but I remember sitting, uh, standing and holding my aunt's hand and I saw a, a black woman standing there waiting for her bag too. And she had a blonde wig on. And in my life, I had never seen a black person with blonde hair, mm -hmm. right? Like I just had never seen that. And I remember, you know, looking at my aunt and being like, why does she have blonde hair? Right. Mm -hmm. And she was like, shh, shh. Right. And it was very that early messaging of, you know, you're not supposed to say certain things. 
mm-hmm. right? You're supposed to be quiet, which is also a cultural thing in in um, Desi culture. But it's also this thing of like, I could clearly visibly see that this black person is not the same black person that I was interacting with back home, right? Mm-hmm. And I never got to ask those questions. I never mm-hmm. got to um, interact with black folks here early on, right? Mm-hmm. Until I had to move around. And I and we left San Mateo and started moving to San Bruno, right? Mm-hmm. Started moving to Foster City, uh, which were still like predominantly white, but there was a lot more um, um, diversity, quote unquote, at that time mm-hmm. in the late 90s um, in, in the South Bay. And, you know, I, I don't remember being able or taught the context of Black people in the U.S., mm-hmm. right? And so I think a lot of it was just not knowing until I got to um, uh, high school and we moved to Fairfield. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's where most of my students were either white or they were multiracial. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Desi or Indian peers were from India. So I never really got to learn, like early on, right? What is the context of Black people in the U.S.? Um, except for like, you know, slavery is a thing in history class and it was bad, but now it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in high school, I started to realize like, I'm not enough to be part of some of these communities, but I'm not also seeing brown and black faces reflected back to me the same way. Mm-hmm. And that's when I think I started to notice like, you know, even my black peers in high school they were trying to fit in in a different way mm-hmm. too right because systematically as black and brown kids we were told i think in the in the you know um i graduated from high school in 2007 so anything between 2000 and 2007 i really feel like a lot of that was informed of like don't stand out you know, you kind of have to assimilate. You you can't like, you know, be different. Um, and that's, you know, something that I think I subconsciously took on. I was a very different person mm-hmm. <laughs> um, back in high school. I used to, you know, do my hair every day and wear eyeliner and like try to to look a certain way so that I could fit in. Um, but then when I would look around, I could see my black peers also doing the same thing. And I think that's like how whiteness in systems like mm-hmm. really upholds itself. Right. Like a single beauty standard or a single right. like idealized beauty standard. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And like, I don't know like if in if your experience was like this, Chris, but you know, I would see the the students who were black at my high school they were either um you know athletes mm-hmm. or they were the like people who were you know super involved with all the like clubs and like mm-hmm. in my AP classes mm-hmm. like there was no so yeah so it's a little bit different for me because like i said we had two we had three black students right. in this class right so 
Um, uh, so it wasn't like there was any sort of, you know, kind of divide like that. Also, the high school I went to, because it was a wealthy high school, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, like wealthy public high school, but wealthy high school, um, it was a high achieving high school, right? So everybody was, not everybody, but for the most part, almost everybody was like, you know, trying to get good grades, trying to get to right. good colleges, right. that kind of stuff. Um, but I do remember, like, my, like, I've been struggling to figure out for me, like, why I started a certain way. And I don't know exactly what it was. And it might be, like, a buried memory or something. But for whatever reason, ever since I was a little kid, I remember just, like, kind of this implicit liberal bubble, right? Of, like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. liberalism is good, right? Like, liberalism is good. We need to treat people fairly. Right. And like, you know, like, yeah, like, like government is there for, for, for welfare, for caring for people, for providing for people. Right. And it was always this kind of, ever since I was young, I remember like being really young and not really understanding anything about politics, except that, um, I didn't understand why people didn't like food stamps. I'm like, no, like, that's like, Mm, you know, the food stamp program is there to care for people. And I didn't understand why we, like, people were opposed to that. But, the reason I bring that up is because my own, like when I look back on my awakening moments, quote unquote awakening moments, right. Right. In terms of like, particularly around like anti-blackness, it wasn't necessarily that I had awakening moments of like, Oh, you're suffering. It was more like awakening moments of like, I just assumed everybody was, was liberal. And when it was clear, when it was clear that people, including myself would hold on to like kind of anti-blackness messages, it was like a shocking moment of like, oh, why are people racist? You know, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because to me, it didn't make sense, right? Like, for whatever reason, and I wish I had a concrete reason, and I don't, and I, and I don't know what to do with that, but I wish I had a concrete reason why I felt that way when I was a really like, young child. But mm-hmm. for whatever reason, that's just the way I felt, you know, it's like racism did not make sense when I was a young child. So, like, when it became clear that people, including myself, like we're socialized with anti-blackness messages it was these mm-hmm. moments of like why you know that didn't make sense you know right so for example um i remember distinctly in 1992 ronnie king happened right 1992 ronnie king happened and um you know for those of you who don't know ronnie king was um a guy who is um I believe, uh, see now, now I didn't do any research, so I, I kind of I'm forgetting some of the details. But I'm pretty sure what happened was he was pulled over for on the side of the highway by the cops for some sort of traffic reason. I don't know why. Um, but what ended up happening was four white male police officers ended up beating him on the mm-hmm. side of the road, right? And there's like video footage and stuff. Um, and those four white police officers were put on trial for beating Ronnie. King. I mean, they they beat him. He, I mean, he almost died. Um, right. Thankfully, he did not die from his injuries, but he almost did. Right? Um, they put him on trial, and the four cops were acquitted. Right? Found not guilty. Right, and that's Which, pretty standard. <laughs> right, it's pretty. It's definitely standard now. Yeah. At the time, it was the highest. It was one of the highest profile cases in the country of police brutality in right. kind of the modern area in like the nineties, right? right. Um, and I remember the the what happened. The reaction at the time was. How could those four cops have been found not guilty, right? There was literally video evidence. Right, right. And right. we know now that, you know, video evidence doesn't mean shit. 
Um, <laughs> but at the time, you know, that was where we were as a country. Like people right. were like, there's video evidence of this. Why were they not guilty? Right. Right. Um, and, and as a result, the Watts riots happened. Right. So like right. there were riots that happened in, in LA. So at the time and continuing to this day, I have family that live in LA. Right. Um, I was actually born down in LA, but we moved up here when I was three years old. So I don't really, I don't claim LA because I don't have really good memories of <laughs> LA. Right. Um, but I family was still live in LA. And I remember, mm-hmm. you know, we, we would visit family every, we would visit these family members every holiday. So we mm-hmm. were down in LA probably like eight times a year or something like that. Right. So Christmas, New Year's, you know, President's Day, any day that we had off, right. We would go down. Mm-hmm. So I remember we went down kind of like towards the end of when the riots were happening. And. Uh, well, when the, so significantly, when the riots were happening, there was a, a fear, like there's a sense of fear within my family. We would call my family down there. Are you okay? Are you close to them? Are you, you know, what's going on? Yada, yada, yada. They didn't really, they weren't really physically close, geographically close to where the riots happened. But, you know, it was still, you know, L.A. is L.A., right? Um, so there was still that sense of like, oh, my God, you're in L.A., right? Um, right. So I remember we went down and we were just living our life, right? Eating food or just shopping or something. And I remember, um, for whatever reason, you know, my mom was driving the car. We were in a minivan. I was in the front seat, I think. And I remember thinking, like, or saying, like, oh, like, we need to go in that direction to get home, right? Mm-hmm. Back to my cousin's place. And she was like, no, no, we'll, we'll drive around this way, right? And I, and I asked her, like, oh, why don't we just go that way? That's a shorter path, right? Um, and I don't even know if I was right or not. I look, looking back on it, I probably wasn't because I'm, I have a terrible sense of direction, but, <laughs> but I, you know, I did ask her, right? I asked her, like, why didn't, why don't we go down that street? And she was like, well, that street's dangerous. So we have to go around. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, why is that street dangerous? And, and she, either her or my aunt, somebody specifically said to me, well, there are black people that live down there. Right. Right. That's why it's dangerous. Right. And I remember at that moment just being like, I don't really get it, right? It was, it was that kind of like, why are people racist, right? So I remember having this moment of like, I don't get why black people means danger. And mm. they were, and, you know, I, I don't know if my parents really entertained this conversation for very long, but mm. I remember asking them, like, why does black people mean danger? And they were like, well, you know, like there are riots and people are angry and people are violent and, you know, black people are, are criminals, you know? Yeah. And I was like, you know, and, and I might have been too young to really have that conversation, but I remember just being really confused by that, you know, mm-hmm. and and that was a moment where I was like, that doesn't seem like the correct thing to think, you know, and I didn't know if there was if there was a correct way to think, but it, it's like that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Where I was like, that doesn't right. something seem right. something felt off. There's something right. about racism, right, or, or something right. about these comments that we hear kind of that get ingrained in our like family's mind right. or like their voices that were like, something doesn't feel right. <laughs> right. And the other, I think the other thing I learned from that too, I remember thinking, I can't talk to my parents or my aunt or uncle about this. Right. 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 There was, there was an inherent loss of trust in that moment of like, if I were to ask them a question that involved black people, Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get a good answer out of them. Mm. 
And I think that was the first moment where I was like, oh, my family might be racist, right? Right, right. And and that's that's so interesting, right? Because I remember like just sitting around with my mom or, you know, family members. And I remember in high school, like my mom and I, I don't even know how this came up, but it stuck with me, right? Especially mm-hmm. as I reflect. But I remember her sharing, like, you know, growing up, um, we could always invite our Fijian friends to our home. You know, mm-hmm. we would have them over for dinner. We would do school projects, you know, or whatever with our Fijian classmates. But we were told explicitly that we could not go to their home. Mm-hmm. Right? Something about like dangerous, it's dangerous or it's not safe. Right? And mm-hmm. I think, you know, Asian folks, we need to examine the safety, right? Yeah. This, yeah. this sense of like, why do we equate black people as not being safe? What has, what has kind of, um, what is seeped into this this um, conscious unconscious consciousness of us that right. we need to think of a community of people right as not safe? Right. Um, well, and, and also yeah. you know part of that too is, and I think it also speaks to white folks too. Yeah. There's, yeah. There's that kind of conflating of like physical danger or physical safety with with like approval of culture right yeah so because because i think that you are too loud or that you Mm -hmm. are too you know big or that you are too whatever i somehow equate that to my physical safety right yeah i mean i think we can we can speak to like asian culture is very specific and how you know the the values right um we teach our kids very early on that you should be your job in life is to get good grades right now is to be healthy is to listen to us and if you don't do that they're like that's not normal right and like respect authority right talk back you know, keep your head down, like, don't make a scene, that kind of stuff. And then I think what we think, too, then, is that the inherent bias on the other end is true, right? So if you do look like you're questioning authority, then you must be dangerous, right? Or if you do look like you're expressing yourself, then you're dangerous, right? Um, And so I think that's kind of where that conflation of, like, you know, anybody who feels too comfortable in their own skin is seen as dangerous by Asian people. Right. right. And and that has a lot to in the US context, right? That has a lot to do with um we did not want to be grouped, right, with right. black folks historically, right. right? We wanted to be seen as we are the good people of color. Right. <laughs> we, Mo- we, model minorities. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um and it stuck with us, right? Especially for folks whose family um, immigrated to the U.S. Um, around the the 90s, right, with the big boom, where most of the folks who kind of immigrated here were the doctors and the lawyers and the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, people in business and accounting and all of that. Well, specifically for Chinese folks, and I think it probably kind of bleeds over to other ethnicities too. Yeah. But, like, that's because the number of immigrants is limited. Right. So, yeah. so by law, there can only be, I forgot what the number was. Again, no research. I apologize. 
<laughs> but whatever that number was, right? By law, like eighty people or hundred and eighty people or something like that, where the like the maximum amount of people that are allowed to immigrate. That meant that there was competition for the immigration, right? Right, right. which meant that like doctors came over, right? Like college mm-hmm. graduates came over, like people with money came over because right. like you know there was competition. So like you know if you like didn't meet a certain standard, there was no hope of you immigrating. Right. And and that just goes back to upholding anti-blackness, right? Because right. you're seen, you're only valuable if you can contribute to the economy. Right. And right. we see and we see that per, uh the the perpetuation of that even to this day, right? Where yeah. where in Donald Trump's eyes and his administration, you know, he is he puts like um I forgot what it's called, but you know, like um you know, there're like restrictions on immigration like you have to you cannot right. be like you, you cannot be a, a a public charge. Sorry, that's the word, public charge. Um, like when you come over, you have to be quote unquote self sufficient, right? So like, right. you know, so it, it's again putting that limit on like you know you already fall into a certain socioeconomic status or a certain right. education level, um, and you're seen as like a quote unquote good immigrant, right? Which means that you know, like you're saying, it 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 puts you know like. Asian folks against black folks. Right. Yeah. Right. And prevents a sense of solidarity because, you know, for us Asian folks, I know like from my experience, what I have seen and experienced is that we don't want to let go of the power that we've been given by white folks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. We're scared of losing whatever power we got from white folks. So right. we willingly are complicit. Right. Yeah. And we, yeah. So we say like, oh, yeah, like we're not the same as them. Right. Right. And but and that's a narrative that we right. tell ourselves to right. make ourselves feel better. Right. Again, right. privilege right. of being able to tell a story like that, because right. in reality, and I think COVID kind of shows how mm. quickly that narrative is not true and right. how quickly, um, you know, not the same as as how black people get treated. But there is that like um that narrative of us going oh you know we aren't white we don't uphold that standard of whiteness um like we will be thrown under the bus at any given moment oh yeah which is which is enforcement of why we should be in solidarity with black and brown folks and not in solidarity with white supremacy right like yeah and yet so many asians are right and so that's one of the difficulties um yeah I mean, if you're here for, like, um, us talking about why all lives matter, like, that's not what this conversation is about. So I hope you weren't expecting that. Uh, we're not here to, like, you know, um, dismiss myths <laughs> of, right. of certain uh, rhetoric that's happening. We're, we're trying to get you to kind of understand the historical context of why we are have done the work of, um, of realizing our own privileges. Right. And how anti-blackness has shown up. And I, I wanted to ask you, Chris, like, yeah. how how do you, I think, in 2020, right, um, navigate the conversation with yourself, right? Like, no, you've done this work for a minute. Right. And we're kind of, I don't know if you feel this, and maybe this is part of the question mm-hmm. as well, as you're approaching, you know, this work of, of you know, um, the self-work around anti-blackness in 2020, 
how are you navigating some of the work that we've already done? Mm. Um, I mean, you know, for me, not necessarily a 2020 thing, but it continues into 2020. Right. But for me, a big awakening moment several years back was having conversations with folks and it being pointed out to me that the Asianness that I am or that I feel or that I represent is a tool for white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Like white supremacy weaponizes Asianness against black and brown folks, right? Yeah. And like, you know, and, and that was, I mean, that's a long time coming too. I can, you know, I think, you know, I mean, I'm, I mean, I guess the whole point of this is to tell stories. So like, <laughs> you know, I remember a time when I was in high school when, um, you know, I was with uh, folks who at the time were my friends. You know, I haven't talked to those people in forever, not necessarily because of these incidences, but just because I've lost Life touch happens. with a lot of Yeah, <laughs> I, I've lost touch with a lot of high school people. Um, but, you know, I, I remember hanging out with a group of folks. We were, we were playing poker. Poker was big at the time. So we were playing poker um, or, or, or trying to play poker, getting ready to play poker. I forget exactly the context. Um, and for whatever reason, I don't know the lead up to this, but for whatever reason, um uh the topic of the n-word came up Mm, and mm. and you know bear in mind the context was we were just all either asian east asian folks or white right right right. so the the physical group of people i was with were either white or east asian right um and and i forgot what the conversation was exactly but it was kind of around that like you know, I would imagine knowing now where a lot of these conversations are, I would imagine the conversation was somewhere around the like, uh, like, like you shouldn't be afraid of words. You can just say whatever you want. It's only evil if you like mm. use it as evil, you know, like words mm. have no value. Yada, 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 right? Like that, that kind of rhetoric, because I, I'm pretty sure like that, that's a common rhetoric too around, around slurs. Um, so, so folks were using the N word either to make their point or to just be like controversial or whatever, whatever it was, right. but folks were using it. I don't think, I don't remember me using it. That doesn't necessarily mean I didn't, but I don't have memories of me using it. I just remember being like in that conversation and not stopping. Right. That's the part I remember mm. significantly. Mm. So I didn't stop it. Right. I was part of this conversation too. I was, you know, like, this conversation happened, right? So the reason why this memory sticks out is because, well, I don't, I don't know if this conversation ever happened a second time, but one of the reasons why this memory sticks out is because, um, we were at a friend's house and other friends were around who are friends of friends, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, um, one of the people was one of those three black folks who, mm went to high school we you know went to high school so he was a friend of a friend who like they came over to that house right right and so like when one of the visible black folks comes over like that conversation stops right right of course you stop that conversation right and i remember having this moment of like one being afraid that he had overheard right Mm. and like being like oh my god what if he heard us talking about the n-word right but two being having this moment of like okay self-reflection 
why do we stop talking about it? If we're really, if we really believe our beliefs, right? Right. right. You're going to stand by the conviction of your beliefs. <laughs> then why are you suddenly afraid to have that conversation when the black person walks in the room? Right. 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 And and being like, okay, like clearly, clearly, none of the people here were really willing to stand by whatever the fuck their argument was. Right. 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 It's because, also yeah. Right. So then. And then having that moment of like, okay, if I'm going to want to strive to be a certain type of a person, I choose to strive to become the type of person who, when I walk in the door, other people know it is not okay to use slurs around me. Right. 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 And that was that moment where I was like, okay, I choose in this moment to not be this type of person where I just participate or even allow a conversation to happen and not stop it. And instead, I choose to be the type of person where when I walk in the room, other people are afraid to use slurs around me. Right. Right. So that was a moment for me where I was like, okay, this is a also like an awakening moment, right? Like, or or whatever, Mm -hmm. like one of those, like, why are people racist moments, right? This is one of those (laughs) moments where it's like, okay, this is a clear example of racism. And I'm going to choose to not be one of these people, be instead be one of those people, right? Yeah. Um, so the, one of the reasons why I talk about that, again, going back to what we were talking about, is because that space was a very privileged space of Asian and white folks. Mm-hmm. And we were allowing that conversation to happen because we were entertaining white supremacy in that moment. And mm-hmm. none of the Asian folks thought to themselves, oh, as a person of color, this is not okay. Right. 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 Instead, all of us Asian folks are like, Oh, we're going to participate in this conversation either because we want to appease white supremacy in that moment or because we genuinely believed it, in which case we were indoctrinated in white supremacy, right? So for whatever reason, either you were indoctrinated in it or you were simply appeasing it, we were participating, right? Yeah. And so, you know, that conversation does not happen, right? Mm -hmm. Most, Mm -hmm. Most likely that conversation does not happen if instead of Asians, we were black folks or we were brown folks or we were native folks, right? But because we were Asian folks, that conversation does happen. Right. right. Yeah. I think for me, I don't remember ever. Um, I think my parents, through whatever messaging, just kind of was like, we don't say that word. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why, but mm-hmm. it was just like, we don't say the N word. Mm-hmm. And it would, I think it would be like, if like, you know, songs are playing on the radio or um you know it like music hip-hop music if mm-hmm. the n-word is there it was kind of like we don't say that word right but then it would be it would almost be like but we don't say anything right mm-hmm. we don't have a conversation at all and mm-hmm. so like in my I feel like like growing up I just didn't have people having these conversations at all like I didn't have friends who were having these conversations I didn't have family members right I just didn't have any explicit conversations so I feel like I was really behind in my act like interactions or my knowledge um and a lot of it I feel like had to do like, even though I had black people, you know, in my life or it, like amongst my classmates, I never really, it was kind of like the, the like, you're just a person, 
Mm-hmm. You're not a black person, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it wasn't until I got to college, I want to say, that I started to really engage in those conversations, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I'm just a naturally, like, listen first and then, you know, do your homework type of person. And so I think I kind of just like jumped head first in college, like into this work and into trying to educate myself. Um, but I, I feel like because of that, I kind of have like guilt around like, oh, I could have been a better person, right? Mm-hmm. And like, obviously, I can't go back and change that, Sharon. Um, but I feel like I get, like, I think I'm naturally an empath to begin with. So I feel the emotions a lot more. And I think because I've had to kind of study and like educate myself later, right. Um, it, it becomes like, I could just talk about this all day. Mm -hmm. And then I, it, it was like, oh, Sharon's just like you know, the the person that's never going to shut up about, like, why this is sexist, why this is racist, why this is, like, whatever ism this is. And it, I felt really isolated in, at home, you know. And so it would be, like, school is where I can talk about this, I can do the work around this, but at home I couldn't have these conversations because, again, we could not have these conversations. Right. You know, and that's that's the thing that I think I'm learning in 2020. And I think my mom is also, you know, starting to acknowledge that herself. Like, oh, I never, like, you know, explicitly talked about this, mm-hmm. you know. And it, it's something that just gets ingrained, you know, with our parents. Like, kind of like, if I don't talk about it, it's not real for my child. And that, mm-hmm. therefore, they are still a child. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think that guilt is definitely part of privilege, right? Yeah, definitely. And like, you know, we, we oftentimes when we're talking about white supremacy, we contextualize as white guilt, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like that guilt is part of just like privilege, like pr- realization of privilege, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, for me, you know, um, like, you know, when I talked about, you know, earlier, like that shame of like being afraid of like if somebody heard me, you know, kind of a mm-hmm. thing is part of that guilt. But also the other part of that guilt, you know, which not necessarily a race context, but but kind of race context, more more a socioeconomic status context. Um, but I remember in college, you know, one college was awakening moment racially because I went to Santa Cruz, which was at the time that I went. um, 12% Asian, right? So I went from a high school that was 70% Asian to a college that was 12% Asian. So that was a awakening moment. But then like sitting in Asian spaces in that in that time, uh, talking to other Asian folks, um you know, no and, and having these moments of like, oh, my story of being Chinese has nothing relatable to your story of being Chinese, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of folks in that in those Asian spaces talked about racism, moments of racism they encountered, moments of being tokenized, moments in which they were the only Asian person in class, or they were the, you know, they were the person who brought weird food to high school and got made fun of for that. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any of those experiences because Mm -hmm. I went to a predominantly Asian high school, right? So like, 
we didn't have any experiences where we were the only Asian kid in class or we, we, you know, got made fun of for our food or whatever, because we all were eating the same food, right? Mm-hmm. We all, you know, we dominated because we were 70% of the school. So we were in all the classes, right? Um, like it was pretty common to hear Mandarin spoken in the hallways in my high school was how many Chinese people there were in my high school, right? Mm-hmm. So like part of that too is that I also carried the guilt of like, am I really allowed to be Chinese if I didn't share these experiences, right? Right. Like, you know, and then and then part of our Asian identities too is like the sense of like whitewashing, right? Which is a terrible mm-hmm. term, but you know, yeah. is that idea of like, am I really white? You know, like I, if I'm going to yeah. experience these things, like do I identify more with white folks than I do with Asian folks, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hear you, you know, but I think I was on the flip side where I did get bullied for mm-hmm. having um, Mandy or Hannah on my hands. I got made fun of the way I looked, right? Mm-hmm. Being really thin. Um, um, uh, and, and, you know, just having a, a body type that like kind of was that typical thing of like what stereotypical Indian girls would look like, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, it threw them off that I didn't have an accent. <laughs> um, and you know, it, it, it was, yeah, I mean, those, I had that experience and I think I still, you know, I couldn't fit in though with the Desi kids. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't, because of like still not having that Indian connection right? I still didn't feel enough. And mm-hmm. so I mostly hung out in the library, you know, like I didn't really have friends. And then the friends I did have, they were all this mixture. And, and especially like in um, junior and senior year, I feel like I kind of had friends who were like the cheerleaders, the athletes, the um, speech and debate. I was in that, right? Like I kind of molded myself to fit everywhere and that Mm -hmm. is like whiteness right Mm -hmm. where like I felt like I had to change the way I spoke if I was talking to these friends and I had to you know change myself when I was talking to these friends and um that's just kind of how I learned to exist Mm -hmm. you know and it's 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 very um I don't know the word like jarring when you know as an adult now right I feel on most days anyway very comfortable in my skin feel very comfortable in how I've decided to also have relationships with people in my life right whether they're super close or not but I remember in college um I was kind of looking through pictures mm-hmm. and I didn't really have Indian friends but I had this like rainbow of brown and black mm-hmm. and white faces in these pictures and I was just like maybe this is the community that I'm just going to cultivate because I don't belong in this Desi community right and that's also when I started to also educate myself in college. And so, you know, I think 
it came I'm grateful that I like allowed myself to even subconsciously you know like make those connections and relationships but I wonder also like is it because I went like my whole formative year not years talking about race or blackness and then all of a sudden I made that huge jump that I um maybe did it because I just wanted to relate to someone and maybe subconsciously I realized like I don't fit in with the white kids Maybe I fit in better with these black and brown kids, right? Like my peers in college. And I guess I didn't even realize it, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's something that I'm like reflecting on now um, where my friends are really diverse and um, hold different identities and different lived experiences, even if they have the same identities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if like, you know, that was because I was doing the work that I subconsciously, maybe consciously, I don't know, um, decided to push through that like white ideology Mm -hmm. of I need to fit into these groups. I need to change myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of it is, is, uh, at some at some point we either we either survive or we don't right right and and you know i think one of the things you were sharing with me just now is similar to black and brown identities like there is an erasure there right yeah and like you know one of the things that i think apita folks asian pacific Islander desi folks do share with black and brown folks is that our histories aren't taught in schools our cultures mm-hmm. aren't taught in schools right so when you say, like, I don't feel connected to a Desi culture or I don't feel connected with other people who are Desi, it's part of it is like your upbringing and part of it mm-hmm. is like your perspective. But part of it is also we're not normalized to treat these cultures as normal, right? Right. Yeah. So, like, you know, when I think about, like, my anti-blackness, like where some of that sits and where I need to do work is that I do have inherent prejudices against, you know, African cultures, you know, Mm. because I'm socialized in the United States, right? So, like, when I think about, like, who a good hero is or what a good story is or what, like, you know, like, who who should somebody look up to? All of those examples are European. Yeah. Like... Yeah, Superman is a white man. Right, Superman's a white man. Even though you know, he's an alien, he's still a white man. Right. He is the whitest alien you'll ever see. Um, but, you know, like, we think about Superman, we think about Batman, we think about Robin Hood, we think about King right. Arthur. You know, these are all, like, white Jesus. These are all, <laughs> these are all European examples that we have been ingrained with, right? And, like, I part of needing to be better about my own social identities is in college really taking the time to dive into my ethnicity and mm-hmm. you know taking the time to like watch chinese films listen to chinese music experience chinese food you know go to chinese places like you know because i'm not taught that in white schools you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um yeah. and it's, and then similarly you know the prejudice around blackness exists because of that 
Yeah, I I think, you know, for me, I never got to learn, right? I never got to like humanize um, what Black culture is, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think growing up, I was ta- if I was taught very early on, you don't ask those questions, mm-hmm. and then you know, socialized to not talk about those things. As I grew up, even the black peers that I did have, like the very few peers that I did have in high school, um, right? I just, I just could, I just think I was taught not to ask questions, to not try to understand or learn directly, right? And then now I think, you know, I, it's like if I like someone's hair, you know, I'll be like, oh, did you get your hair done? It right. looks really good, right? And if they make a comment of like, yeah, it took like all Sunday, I know what that means, right? Like I know that like getting my hair done is very different than getting, than how black women get their hair done. Right. And and that's something because I've like watched documentaries, right? Like I think um, Chris Rock did a documentary called Good Hair. And I don't know like, mm-hmm. you know, if that was the first documentary or movie that I've I've I'd watched at that point but that was the first one that I remember where it goes into how systematically right um we have a whole hair industry mm-hmm. that's not run and owned by black people for the most part there are some uh, but for the most of it it's Asians mm-hmm. right and and um or white people who run the salons who who or sell the um the hair and the products and i'm just like how does this make sense right Mm -hmm. and i remember then doing a deep dive of why don't more black people own their own products right and the things that they need and use and realizing that oh the foundations are this white capitalistic you know systems mm-hmm. um and from then on i think i just made it a priority to do the work and try to educate myself on a more um like why systemically things don't make sense <laughs> i mean you know one example I, I like using is like you know in sports all the all the best athletes are black again a history of systemic racism Mm-hmm. But then all the teams are owned by white people, right? Right. And it's like when in basketball, which is probably, you know, not to be not to be flippant about it, but probably the most woke of the big four sports in, in the United States. <laughs> even in basketball, where obviously there's a lot of racism, subtle racism, over racism even. But even in basketball, like Michael Jordan, who is who is the best basketball player who's ever lived, right? Legend, goat, whatever. Um <laughs> He it he like he barely was a team owner. He was a minority owner, right. minority owner of the of the Charlotte Bobcats. Um, like when the when the richest and best basketball player of all time can't own a basketball team, like what does that say about the systemic racism in the right? Sport, right? Like, right. Um, and it's not just about the money. Money was not the reason that he could right. not own right. 
a team, right? And it, like, and 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 not respectability. Rather, right? like Jordan played the right, right. game, right? Like, right. clearly, it was not about do you know basketball. Clearly, it was not about are you good at basketball. Clearly, it was not about are you rich enough to own a team. Right, it had to right. be one thing, which is race. Right. Exactly. And and how how black folks show up in the ownership of their own culture, in their own food, in their own language, right? Like it's, and I think that's why in this current movement in Black Lives Matter, there's a call for people to put their money where their, or put their money where their mouth is, Mm -hmm. right? Because there's a financial aspect to this movement, but there's also this um, drive and this call for people to support black owned businesses, right? To support, black owned uh, structures, right? Because that is the systemic part of white supremacy. And if you want to be anti, like really support anti-blackness work, we have to acknowledge the historical context of why we're here too, right? Like burning down Target isn't just the sake, right? People didn't burn down Target for the sake of burning down Target, right? It was corporations that dismantle neighborhoods that have historically been created right or started by black folks and then they get taken over right as soon as a trader joe's pops up anywhere in your neighborhood like that's bad news (laughs) right and it's not just modern day gentrification it's a history of it right right it's a history of when black folks are in a place to make money and to buy things then they are systematically beaten down by white supremacy right and we right. see, like, the Tulsa Massacre is a great example of that, right? Where, like, Black Wall Street, where, where Black folks were making money, being prosperous, playing the game, right? right. And right. white people were threatened and, as a result, physically, like, bombed and killed people, right? Right. Like, you know, and, and set folks back, right? And the same, same Black Panthers, right? Like, we see that at the Black Panther Party. Right. where the Black Panthers were in a place where they were doing community uplift, where they were supporting their own community, they were providing free lunches and free education right. and healthcare. And, yeah. black, and white and folks... Were, yeah, and they were showing up for other communities of color, right? There was like a, a unity that was happening. Right, and, and white folks were threatened, and so they went yeah. in there and violently took over, right? Right, um, yeah. Um, and not only that, but you know, for the prominent figures in these earlier movements, they were put on like FBI watch lists and like right. it and wasn't just not, right. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't just like a George Zimmerman with a handgun goes in and think right. it's like the system worked right. together to conspire to beat down anything, right? Right, exactly. And I think that's where, you know, um that's that's where we need folks to understand like, yes, it's horrible that people's lives are being taken on the daily because of the color of someone's skin right a black person's skin and there's so many ways that 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 we all allow that to happen right Mm -hmm. it it there's it doesn't go from zero to violent right there's all these steps in between that we haven't spoken out against right? right and like if we're committing ourselves to this work and acknowledging that we hold privilege, we need to um, put ourselves in those uncomfortable steps, right? Mm-hmm. I, if I'm in a meeting and I see a colleague, you know, get shut down, I'm not going to 
you know, email them afterwards and check in, you know, I mean, yes, I'm going to do that too, but I'm also going to give them a look of like, Hey, you need me to back you up. Do you need me to also be like, Oh, excuse me. I think this person was also saying something, right. It needs to be in the moment. The, the nonviolent quote unquote action is happening too. Right. I mean, as a PETA folks, we may not have as much privilege as white folks, but we do right. have privilege. Right, exactly. And like a white person will listen to an APETA person before they will listen to a black or brown person, in particularly in a professional setting, right? Like, right. and we need to we need to weaponize that for black and brown people and not for white people, as have been done in the past, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, At the very least, not against black people. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, we we need to recognize that, like, we we have a part to play in that. Right. Like, mm-hmm. we can't run away from that. Like you're saying, you know, it's like and 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 the action that you can take is not just a single solitary action. Right? There's so right. many things you can do. Yeah. Um, and, you know. And and yet, you know, part of the difficulty of being a, in a PETA identified person, particularly East Asian, right? I don't want to throw Southeast Asian people in this mix because they're not always in this mix. One of the difficult things about being an East Asian person is that you do see us taking down support structures for black folks, right? Like, for mm-hmm. example, it is East Asians who are propositioned by white folks to sue against affirmative action, right? Oh, my God. That's a... How we have brainwashed Asian folks to right. uphold affirmative action. I to dis- I well, mean, dismantle yeah. affirmative action. Right, dismantle, but like we still like play along, you know, like there's so many like if you look at a brochure, you're gonna see an Asian person as like that placeholder right. <laughs> person right. of color. No, but yeah, well I'm talking about specifically cases in which Asian people have sued to try to dismantle. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, this uh, affirmative action discriminates against Asian people. It's like, no, no. Like, it does not. Right? It does not discriminate against you. It discriminates against Um, black And also, like, you know, be very careful when you say Asian because, you know, there's an entire subsect of the Asian diaspora who are not benefiting from whatever you think, right? Um, Right. Like, I, I was looking at a report, I want to say a year ago, where um, Pacific Islanders and Desi folks are only 3% of their graduating college rates. Right. Right? Like, we may make it to college, right. but we don't go beyond that towards graduating, and we never make it to grad school. Right. And, and part of that, too, to bring it back to what we were talking about, is yeah. our own inherent anti-blackness within the PETA diaspora, right? Like right. we hold skin up color. It, right, skin color, like colorism within right. the PETA communities is huge, right? And like the fact that we would not only that we are one of the the population centers that does like like has like like skin whitening and shit like that. Um oh. but that we are like so proud of it. Like like yes! Oh my god! Like we put that shit on commercials and stuff. Like we have commercials of skin whitening cream and commercials of like eyelid surgeries where it's like look more white. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Like, and yeah. and the consequence of that is that we do 
discriminate within our own diaspora against folks who happen to have darker skin. Yeah, and that's, again, upholding white ideologies of what is acceptable, what is beautiful, what is the way to be, right? right? You are a good person, you're a good Asian person if you act this way, if you dress this way, if you look this way. Right, and as a result, you should be rewarded. Right. Right. You like, will be you rewarded. Be, you should be rewarded by yeah. like having money and having possessions and having opportunities, right? Right. Yeah. And and you know, we do that and yet like we do that and yet, you know, research shows that on dating apps, the folks that get the most um likes or hits or, you know, follow ups are black women. And East Asian men, like, or Asian men, right? Depending on the color of your skin, right? Right. So, like, a South Asian man is going to be less likely. In Um, in a very similar way to blackness, like, there is an exotification of our Asian identities, right? Right, yeah. And, And, you know, part of that is we have to also unlearn that for ourselves and unlearn that for others. But, like, you know, like, the fact that, like, Asian women are exotified and the fact that, you know, black men are exotified is like, that's a very similar, like, consequence, you know, Mm -hmm. to this, like, idealized whiteness of, like, beauty standards and ideology of way to be, you know? Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I mean, my mind is, like, going somewhere, like, all over the place, but, you know... If anything you take away from this conversation is really examine, you know, mm-hmm. how you have or currently are playing into this game, mm-hmm. right? Playing into the notions of why you act the way you do or why you dress or why you speak. Is it you or is it because you were taught that this is white? Right. Right. Not right. This is white. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I know I personally have been guilty of this. You know, I know that growing up, because I did not have, again, because of white supremacy, I did not have the (laughs) opportunity to really understand a holistic sense of what black experiences encompasses, right? Not just a singular blackness, but the entirety of like other people's experiences, because I didn't have the chance to kind of understand that experience or 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 um understand that experience that or learn about that um i went by stereotypes right and so like the exotification of black culture and stereotype right and you're like oh if you act black you're cool right or if you listen to like hip-hop or if you dress mm-hmm. in fubu right you're cool right and like that's not you know like people who do that without experiencing like what it means to be black right not experiencing obviously you can't experience that but without understanding that experience like you are playing off a stereotype and it is the Mm -hmm. same as exotification of an identity right 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 i guess you know the next question is and maybe this is not fully formed so i have to edit this part out (laughs) um you know how what you know, we're we're still working on ourselves and we're still learning every day and we're going to fuck up. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I'm going to own that I'm going to fuck up, right? Mm-hmm. 
I will too. Yeah. How do we, you know, I, I don't know if you feel this, but I feel like 2020 is just like whenever we can actually see each other and be in community with each other. Um, how do we change our day-to-day interactions? You know, like how do we consciously, you know, in the classroom, at home, in our workplaces, at the grocery store, at the park, right? Mm -hmm. At a barbecue, like what are we doing so that this, like what is, what is a step, you know? And I, I've been thinking about that because I, you know, when we get integrated back <laughs> into society. When we can see people again. <laughs> right. I, I'm thinking about this, right? Like, I, I, I want to, like, I have purposely not been checking in with my Black friends mm-hmm. for the last, like, I've checked in only if they've engaged right mm-hmm. um but i haven't reached out and been like how are you like if i i comment on something or if i am messaging someone i almost have been like you know i love you mm-hmm. you know like i love you i care about you that that dog is cute your dog is mm-hmm. you know like kind of like that how would i interact with someone because i feel like my black friends are going through a lot and I don't want them to like answer another, how are you question. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also like at this, you know, on June 11th, um, I'm also thinking about, you know, when we're back together and I want to hear how they felt in that mm-hmm. first week of everything going down. Right. Like, what is that? What is that? Like, how do I how do we do that? I mean, more towards your first question, less towards your second question, because I don't really know the second question. Um, (laughs) I do think that one, you know, I would love to get to a place where we can own our ignorance. Right. Mm -hmm. Like when you make a mistake, you say you made a mistake, you know, like. Mm -hmm one of the things that we're seeing right now when folks are being called out is there's a running away of that being called out, you know? Right. And, and I think we need, one, we need to be able to own when we make mistakes. Two is we need to be able to genuinely learn when we make mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. Like we need to be able to say, okay, I made a mistake. I'm sorry for the mistake. I'm going to do whatever is necessary to learn from that mistake. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we definitely, we need to be in community with one another. And when I say be in community, I don't mean like force people to sit down with us. I mean, mean like we we need to be there for folks, you know, and like, you know, we need to, we need to have the presence of mind of being able to say, I will walk in the spaces we walk and not be afraid of it. You know, Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. I think we have a tendency to be afraid of things that are unfamiliar you know right yeah and don't I talk think, about it <laughs> right and i think yeah. like as asian folks we know you know we have both shared examples of that i know that white folks feel that way i mean folks of color sometimes feel that way but like we stick with our own and we're afraid to walk where we're not represented you know yeah. like, wh- white yeah. people are scared of being in places where there aren't other white people you know right 
Right. And I think Asian folks, I know I, I feel that. My family has taught me that. Like, we're scared of being in places where other Asian folks are represented, you know? Yeah. And I think what, what we need to do, what being a community means is that we can't be afraid of that. We have to be able to step in places where we are not represented in order to learn, in order to build trust. Like, right. we can't just yeah. be like, oh, like, that place isn't for me. I'm never going to go there. It's like, no, you know, yes, there are going to be some places that aren't for you. I don't want to be like, invade spaces. Like, <laughs> don't invade spaces. Don't invade spaces, don't invade please. Spaces. And if somebody invites you somewhere, go. Like, right, know, yeah, don't be afraid of being in uncomfortable situations, yeah, or you know, whatever spaces you're creating, ask the question, Is this for everybody? Mm -hmm. You know, like if you're going to hold a collective or a gathering space, right, and it's for you know, people who are who love painting. Right. Right? Does this open it up? Have you reached out to folks outside of your own bubble? Right. You know, like, I think that's something that I really want to see, right? Um, I kind of want to see the, you know, the oppression Olympics put to the side, mm -hmm. um, especially for non-Black folks. And uh, for us to really think of our own communities outside of this, right? Because I think we're at a point because we haven't had to interact face to face. It's very easy to choose who you're going to do a Zoom call with or FaceTime with, and you, I I think I realized like, oh, these are the people in my bubble, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like these are the people, and I have to actively set aside time to talk to people, right? Mm -hmm. To to connect. To be like, okay, I, even if, you know, you've told me you don't have capacity or I don't have capacity, I'm going to send you this meme because I love you and you need to laugh. I need to laugh. We need to share, even if it's something like a moment online. So I think like when I get to go back out and interact with people, um, I want to really reflect on like, how am I being not just inclusive, but going beyond that, right? Especially as someone who's, job is to create spaces right like how am i doing that and and i think it's important also to make sure while you're thinking of that that it is inclusive of the voices of people at the table and not in lieu of right. that right right so you don't you don't think to yourself like oh i'm going to make a space for black people what do black people like it's right. like no 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 you know no. You, you need to bring, you need to have conversation with people and, and right. go to people and say, help me plan this, help me stage this, help me figure right. this out, right? right? And not, you know, just be the dominant voice, you know, because we get into representational issues with that as well. Right, exactly. And, and we're going to see this happen because, you know, some people are going to write a blog or a research paper or whatever. And, you know, whatever you write, whatever, research paper, blog, um, video, podcast, whatever, um, you know, whatever you do, mm -hmm. you know, don't take from black people. Don't, especially don't take from black women and then not be like, do you want to, you know, co-author this with me or, or produce something with me or get compensated for this. Like I, I see that a lot already. And mm -hmm. I like going forward, I feel like people are going to write about this moment in time. And it's, <laughs> I don't want that to happen anymore. Yeah. 
and and it's it's more than just citing to your sources, right? Like we're right. we're past that. You need to yeah. just work with people. If there's right. something that somebody wrote that you're like, that was awesome, actually reach out to them and be like, hey, can you help me with this? Not just like, oh, I'm going to quote them and then I'll cite them yeah. and it'll be fine. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which happens a lot, right? And and Chris and I are in that space. So that's why this is coming up for us. But, you know, going forward, right? I think for me, I I need to see that. Mm-hmm. So that I think it also informs our learning, right? Mm-hmm. If there's an article on this moment in time, regardless of whoever, whatever, if you're going to work on something, you need to have those voices present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I know that there's still tons to talk about, but we are at almost an hour and a half. <laughs> so, you know, um, I think, you know, hopefully we covered some bases around um, some what examples of self-work might be or examples of self-reflection. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, if you were listening to that, that's what you were looking for. You got something out of that. Yeah. Um, and if anything, just go to therapy. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, and that's part of self, self-work, right? Yeah. Therapy, yeah, yeah. Removing the stigma of, of therapy. Um you know, we all need therapy, particularly people of color, particularly people from marginalized identities, because the racism, sexism, homophobia, et cetera, et cetera, that we face is trauma. Yes. Um, yes. Okay. What black people are going through right now is trauma. Right. Right. If you are like, like when the pandemic started, and you're like, I feel really tired and I, I don't have like my energy varies throughout the day. Like that's trauma. Like we're experiencing a collective trauma. <laughs> like when when the only thing that's showing on tv is videos of black bodies being hurt or killed mm-hmm. and you can't get away from it that is trauma yeah um so yes go to therapy for sure um yeah so yeah i think you know wrapping up you know there's so much we could talk about in terms of self-care so much we could talk about about next steps so we Maybe we'll do another podcast where we'll cover some of that stuff. I mean, the summer is still relatively long. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I want to thank you, Sharon, for sitting down with me and having this conversation. Thank you, Chris, for yeah. being open and um, suggesting this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, hopefully folks got something out of this and we will catch you later, I guess. Yeah. On the next episode. Thank you so much for listening. Engage with us on our social media. Um, our Instagram is at SJSU Mosaic. Um, you can also email us at mosaic at sjsu.edu. Chris and I are coming up with a whole bunch of workshops on mm-hmm. self-work um, as part of getting our SJSU community kind of grounded in this work um, mm-hmm. in the fall. So look out for that. For sure. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Listen, listen carefully.